You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And tonight, the part of Lee and Andy will be played by Ryan Gosling and Ryan Reynolds. Oh, and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Ryan Gosling. <laughs> I was to say one of them. How are you, my friend? I'm I'm good. Uh, I, mean, I, I know that I say this quite often, but you know I, I'm tired again. Uh, this week is for the opposite reason of last week. Last week, you remember that I was on a run of earlies, and you were? so I literally rushed home from work. Two weeks on the run, I've had to rush home from work on the Sunday, and then set up to record. And it's like me, me, my mind's not quite with it, and I got a bit rambly. The edit last week was hilarious. I like, like to say I ended up chunk cutting out about 30 minutes I, of I did notice, <laughs> <laughs> But this week, I'm tired for the opposite reason, because I'm now back onto my normal run of lates. So my body's still going, yeah, remember last week when you were getting up at 6am every day? You still got to do that, but you're going to work at night. Uh, so <laughs> when you sent the message this morning, I'd literally only just opened my eyes and I got a text from Lee saying, should we do it at 11? I was like, it's doable. <laughs> it's doable. Let's go for it. <laughs> Yeah, and I was up and ready this morning. <laughs> Even though I did sleep in, I went out to a gig, and it was it was the first time I've had a really late night for ages, and like <laughs> I didn't sleep well afterwards because I was driving back from Nottingham, and then this morning, boom, I was in a coma basically. <laughs> just complete, complete. The world does not exist anymore. Yeah, you are just in your own up. dreamland. Yeah, I like, I like those ones where you just literally just conk out, and that's it. Yeah, uh, the only yeah. thing that I, I worry about is, you know, uh, as we're getting into our aging years, you're always worried that if you have one of those deep sleeps, you might not remember to go to the toilet halfway through the night. Oh, I think you do. <laughs> I think it's built into your DNA. I, I once saw a documentary about why we wake up to go to the loo. It's, uh, it was interesting about instincts and all that. You don't need to hear that because you've not come here to talk about um, private functions. <laughs> there you go. And we'll tie it to we'll a be film. reviewing that documentary next week on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Because next week's a, a pretty light week, so I'm I'm going to be clamouring to find films to review for next week. But I'll find something because you know me; I always find any old Sky Originals or <laughs> or Paramount yeah, Plus Originals as well. And we're also building up to our two hundredth episode. We are, yeah. It's only a, only three episodes away, mm. unless we pad it out with a few bonus episodes in between. I mean, we could we could cheat here. <laughs> we could yeah, track it out as long could, as we, we want. We can prepare for it. You know me; I still want to do I still want to do a live show. It'd be great to do something live. Um, it's just the logistics of it and, you know, having no budget. Uh, yes. kind of stymies like where we'd like to go and where we'd like to grow, which I know Lee's got a, a couple of ideas for how to grow this year. Yeah. Uh, one is uh, uh, T-shirts. We've been thinking about um, not a huge amount because we know that our audiences are loyal uh, we don't want to print too many, but we've got an opportunity to to print some film file T-shirts. And if you're interested, just drop us a line if you would like a, a film file T-shirt. Uh, we're coming up with ideas right now as to what those T-shirts will feature. But if you're interested, drop us a line so we can get an idea if anyone would want one. Be the only kid on your street to wear a film file t-shirt it'd be great if like some of the listeners out there have picked up on some uh, repetitive phrases that we have, yeah. we come out with that we don't realize we do you know like how things like a uh, pitch meeting channel on yeah, screen yeah. rants you know the super easy billion inconvenience and things like that become like slogans is there anything that we keep saying that we might not realize that we keep saying because they'd be great little things to put on there yeah 
because you'd know. Yeah, yeah, they'd know. I'd hope they'd know. I hope they're paying attention when they listen. They might not. They might just like have it on the background as background noise, you know, to drown out the dogs barking next door. But I know that a few people do listen to it because they prompt me whenever they see me in public going, oh, I listened to this weekend. Oh, I like that bit. It's like, okay, I get awkward in these conversations. I do. Let me just... I do. <laughs> you know, when I do the band thing and, and people come up afterwards, I always thought my ego would, would kick in and go, hey, thank you very much. Um, but I don't, I, I find it really awkward and just want to say yeah. thank you. And I really genuinely do want to thank people. But I, I do, I, I'm really surprised at myself. We were talking about it with my partner the other day about, say, I went to see a band and because they were uh, a friend of mine, a friend of mine was in it, uh, people coming up while we were chatting. And um, I, I find that, I find that really awkward. I've been amused this week with, ever since the Mickey Mouse thing became public domain. And we spoke oh, yes. about that in the news a couple of weeks ago about what that actually means and don't be stupid people. There's so many reports now that, it must be slow news month for some journalists because they're looking to see when everything becomes public domain. So, oh, Superman and Batman are going public domain. Yeah, in almost 10 years. Yeah. These Marvel characters will go public domain. Yeah, in 20 years. You know, let's let's not get ahead of the game. And, you know, at least it gives these people 10 years to work out what that actually means before they get themselves into a, a whole lot of legalities. Because everyone seems to be convinced that in 10 years' time, you can make your own Superman film and call it Superman. And good luck with that one, because work out the difference between copyright and trademark before you start mm. delving into these things. Because I finally watched the trailer for that Mickey Mouse nonsense horror film that's okay. coming out this so year. Soon. And I'm pretty sure that Disney have got a nice little ground to take action against them if it makes any money, because there is the reference of the name Mickey Mouse, and that's not public domain. As we discussed, the image is public domain, but nothing else is. There's a, a, a room. I'm sorry. In fact, there is a, a high rise full of Disney Warner lawyers just ready yes. to go, sharpening their quills aiming out into the audience it's going to be interesting to see everyone jumping on the bandwagon with all these public domain properties as they all roll out because there will be other lesser known ones that just slip under the radar over the next few years but it's just ridiculous to be going oh 10 years from now this is going to happen just stop it stop it already people so last week on our social challenge i thought was a pretty intriguing question Ooh. which was is there a film that you can think of where the good guys don't necessarily win, or in fact, the villain succeeds. Andy, how did we do? We've had a good scattering of responses to this, oh, and good. annoyingly, I, I thought of a few as soon as we finished recording last week and typed out like, oh yeah, these are going to be really good. And uh, a couple of our listeners have beaten me to the punch on it. So uh, it... It's because they're smart. <laughs> they're not only yes. good looking, they're smart. So uh, let's start working down. Uh, so Dennis Obi over on Blue Sky uh, said movies like Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back and Avengers Infinity War and The Dark Knight are perfect examples of it. Yeah. Yeah. With Empire Strikes Back, I mean, that's that's a perfect example because it's part that that forms part of the setup for the third film is that this is the dark phase of the hero's journey yeah. and the villain has won. And, you know, the rebels look like they're going to get completely broken by the end of it but there's always that hope in star wars went on to say often the villain is more interesting than the hero and when it's done right it's a pleasure to watch and i can't agree more i think we've mentioned a few times when we covered in deep dives and we've spoken about really good villains 
And, you know, if you can genuinely empathise with a villain. I even said it about Saw 10 last year. Yeah, but bizarrely, it gets you caring for the Jigsaw Killer, which you shouldn't care for a villain. But when you do, that's good storytelling. Really good. It doesn't mean that I'm going to go out and start sacrificing people like the Jigsaw Killer. It just means that I could see the depth of that character and I could understand them a bit more. Over on X Twitter, Craig writes, tech writer, no country for old men. Ooh, what mm, a pick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I never thought that one pick. wasn't on my list. That's been added onto the deep dive list now because uh, this is this is the worst thing about this question of the week. It's, <laughs> it's, we yes, end it's up with reminder. another 20 films <laughs> added to the deep dive list, which is rapidly... I mean, we've, got, we've got enough deep dives now to cover up until episode 300, let alone 200. Stevie Dan 1969 said The Wild Bunch and 300. 300's an interesting one because, yes, the core heroes don't win, but... It generates that we can beat the encroaching enemies to all the surrounding territories and leads to, like, you know, success in the end. But that core group of 300 that stood their ground don't win. They just mm. make a moral victory. Galactus, who's at same bread JT, but I like the fact that they call themselves Galactus because it makes perfect sense when they say Infinity War. If you've got to suggest a Marvel film, you might as well have a Marvel-related name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Good and Craig Knight also threw in seven. Great choice. I never, I never thought of that either on, on my list. Over through Spotify, Spidey Anonymous, Anonymous said, The Thing instantly springs to mind, given Mr. Yeah, Carpenter saying that yeah. The Thing has survived. Uh, Empire Strikes Back obviously springs to mind. And the obscure 1966 movie, Seconds, if you count that. Oh, great film. Rock Hudson. Uh, well worth seeing. Well worth doing a deep dive again. Over on Facebook, my mumsy said, The only one that she can think of at the moment is the Green Mile John Coffey. I mean, yes, the evil guard Percy does get his comeuppance, but John Coffey still dies for something he didn't do. A really sad ending, but with a happy-ish twist. Yeah, yeah, Coffey doesn't, you know, you root. I mean, I remember when I was reading the novelization, you know, with the serialised six-parter, Stephen King wrote, and throughout it, you're hoping that John Coffey gets freed and manages to live a normal life, and that's just an impact. When we did our deep dive, I said that, you know, that scene always reduces me to tears, but it kind of needs it. Uh, Lee Leary said Silence of the Lambs. Depends who you think of the villain. Yes. <laughs> yeah, good one. Some of us empathise with Hannibal, I'll have you know. <laughs> which, amusingly, at work this week, someone asked, which food from films would you really like to eat? Uh, and I said, uh, the brains from Hannibal. I've just been watching the penultimate episode of The Bear and everything on that menu, basically. Line that up in my belly. Uh, Adnan Mustafa, another one for seven. Seven seems to be quite popular. It's, it's a perfect choice. And then we get to the people who stole all of my answers. <laughs> Owen Cooper, who said Watchmen. I had that on my list. Yeah. Seven. Yeah, old yeah, boy. Yeah, and old yeah. boy, when I came up with that one, I thought, oh, no one's going to get old boy. Way. Owen's beat me to it. Uh, Fight Club, which was the first one that I initially thought of as you were asking the question last week, and I was ready with that one. Uh, the Batman and Blade Runner, perfect, because as Owen Cooper said, Roy Batty can be considered the hero, and if you want to call Deckard the hero, he's left to question whether or not he's actually a replicant and therefore the villain, if you ignore 2049. I replied to him to say, you've stolen all my picks there, and he said he was also thinking of Taxi Driver too, as society stays the same and moves on after what he did. I was like, that was also on my list. <laughs> so well done, Owen, you've managed to read my mind on this one. And Lindsay's story then tied it all up and used a few others that I had in. She does like films where the villain wins. 
Silence of the Lambs, which has already been mentioned. Uh -huh. The Omen. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Uh, and The Green Mile springs to mind when the hero loses. And also, and this was the last one from my own list, Logan. That kind of broke me. Okay. I've, I've got a couple to add in. Uh, the Wicker Man. Yes. I had that on my list, so thank you. You've oh, did you? Up. Okay. Um, <laughs> so Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid being the clearest one. Yeah. Uh, where the heroes don't make it. Memento. Yeah. Because he never wins. Continuously never wins. The original version, not the remake of The Vanishing from 1988. Great choice. Because that is one of those gut punch endings. And yours, I think you also put Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, didn't you? Yeah, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Even though Clint Eastwood gets the money, it's not a happy ending. And I love that film. Again, welcome it gladly to a deep dive. Yeah. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Well, well, both yes. versions, I guess, you could, you'd include in that. Yeah, very much so. Everything that I wanted to put down was mentioned by everyone else. And literally, as we were about to start recording the show, I was racking my brains to think of anything else. Did anyone say The Dark Knight? I don't think anyone said The Dark Knight. No, no, throw don't the think they did. There. Because whilst, you know, the hero did kind of win, he had to become the villain to the public. As a result, the Joker's plan paid off to discredit Batman. Aside from that, I can't think of anything else because everyone else had the same mindset. But some Blair great Witch. answers. Blair Witch. I've been told this a few times by different people over the past couple of weeks with Blair Witch because it's what it's one of those films that comes up in conversation quite frequently when you're surrounded by film geeks. And I love the theory that the Blair Witch, there was no supernatural stuff going on, but it was just that the two guys had staged everything to kill her off. And it was all to take her and like drive her mad and kill her. And when you watch the film with that perspective, it becomes something completely different. Okay, that's interesting. Well, not that that leads us on to this week's question, because this week's question is entirely different. We are looking forward to a certain amount of films this year. Uh, one of the films that's high up on our list is The Boy and the Heron. And that got me thinking of great animated films. What is your favourite animated film of all time uh, let us know here on the film file and you can do that by heading over to social media platforms follow us film file uk we're on most platforms but we're most active on facebook twitter and blue sky and mastodon or you can contact us directly podcast at filmfile.uk is the email address to fire your responses to or you can if you're listening on Spotify, you can answer via Spotify itself, where the question of the week will be in the show notes just below the episode. So let's talk about this week's show. What have we got for you? Well, of course, we've got news and box office. We have a deep dive into Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. We have reviews of Holdovers, which both me and Lee have seen this week. And I've also seen The Boys in the Boat and new film that landed on Netflix, The Kitchen. Before that. Shall we start with the box office and the news? It'd be rude not to. I think we should. So it's a pretty quiet part of the year, the first weeks in January. It's either award season nominees or it's the kind of film that the studio just sort of throws out into the quiet period, hope, hopefully that it will land somewhere. So what does that leave us, Andy, for the box office? So over in the US this weekend, Mean Girls retained the top spot for a second week with 11.7 million added to its total. The Beekeeper was in second place again with 8.6 million. Wonka in third place with 6.7 million. 
Migration takes fourth place, 5.5 million. Anyone but you in fifth place, rounding off the top five with 5.4 million. Meanwhile, here in the UK, Mean Girls opens in the first place, taking 3.2 million on its opening weekend. Wonka still holding strong in the UK audience in second place. 1.7 million added to its totals, taking 58 million in the UK alone. Poor Things is in third place, taking another 1.1 million. Anyone but you in fourth place with 1.07 million. And One Life slipping down one place to stay just within the top five, taking another 858,000 to its total. Worldwide, Wonka so far during its run has had a pretty good 533 million takings across the worldwide box office. As you said, it's it's what it's that time of year when most of the things are like smaller. I mean, it's it's quiet season, January to mid February. We don't get any big hitters. So things like Mean Girls, which are I'm not discrediting it, it's doing good business, but it's not blowing the box office apart. But it's doing enough to remain consistent towards the top spot. And when films like The Beekeeper can still maintain a presence in the top five, you know something's wrong with the world. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did enjoy the film, but. I enjoyed it because it was a stay-them-action film, not the actual script, as anyone who listened to my review last week will know. But yeah, it's it's just that time of year, and it's going to be like this for the next couple of weeks. Like I said earlier, um, I'm struggling to look to see what films I'm excited for in the coming weeks at the moment. There will be one or two things that drop that I go, ooh, didn't realise that. But there's nothing that's got me hyped until mid-February when Iron Claw comes out, basically. Thankfully, though, even though it's quiet, we still have some news for you. We do. Rumblings have started that uh, festive favourite, and I say that with quote marks around it, <laughs> Polar Express might actually get another another film. It might get a sequel. Uh, it's been 20 years since that film. 20 years since that came I remember out. seeing it. I'll tell you why I remember seeing it. I saw it at a press show. I was the only one who turned up for it. And the audio was so loud that it was uncomfortable. It was it was blaring. And I've never liked Polar Express. Now, I know for some, and we did this before Christmas, that it is yeah. a family favorite, a, a festive favorite for a lot of people. But I don't like it. I think it falls apart. I think the most intriguing bit is in Act 2. Once it gets to the Father Christmas bit, I think it's, it's, it's pretty shoddy. And I thought the animation, oh, yeah. though, at the time, some of the shots are absolutely breathtaking. That dead eye look that the characters had was was incredibly off-putting. So I don't have any love for it. Well, producer of that film, Gary Goatsman, who's currently out promoting Apple's Masters of the Air. Now, that's what we might be talking about next week. That's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, so in the absence of reviews, there will be TV shows to cover. Um, he's revealed that talks have been placed about a potential sequel uh, to Polar Express, which is currently being worked out. He adds that he'd also love to do a Where the Wild Things Are too, and I'm there for Where the Wild Things Are too, and a third Mamma Mia feature, and I'm not there for the third Mamma Mia feature. No, I wasn't there for the first, to be perfectly honest. But he said that none of these projects have been greenlit as of yet. They're just working out the potential details of where they can go with it. But when asked specifically about the Polar Express sequel, his quote was, listen, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do a sequel of Where the Wild Things Are. There's a lot of things that we've done. If it if it's established itself as a brand, branded itself, those movie studios want another one. That's the way it goes. I'm up for Mamma Mia 3, man. That'd be a ball to do right about now. But it becomes that there's so much involved with whose artistic property would that be? Would that be okay? It's not just like, hey, let's just do another one free sailing. So they take the time. That's okay. We don't mind things going slowly, but that's all trying to be worked out right now for sure for Polar Express 2. Yes. So in a roundabout way, he basically said, 
yeah, we're, we're kind of working on the script, uh, but without saying we're definitely making it. Now, given the fact that Polar Express gets repeated view, rerun viewings every Christmas at cinemas around the world and still takes in money, I think this is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason for it not to happen apart from finding a great script. But well, they didn't. That didn't stop them make the first one. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I, I've got no love for it. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of positives to say about Polar Express. I know I'm in a bit of a minority, but for me, it it, it fails on so many different different levels. Yeah. Apart from Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is fabulous in everything. Yeah, you know, and the the multiple characters that he mocapped throughout that film, he gives everything to it. It's just a shame that the animation over him was pretty bad. I mean, don't get me wrong, the animation of the train itself is stunning some of the shots of the train rattling through snow was beautiful but it's the, yeah, the characters that they struggled with yeah the characters was a big struggle uh, moving on to another property that might be coming back and uh this actually piqued my interest despite okay. the fact that there was a really terrible film in the 90s and that studio canal had been planning a reboot of the 1960s television series the avengers with warner brothers discovery owned walter wall co-producing so some of you youngsters going, hey, wait a minute, that is the Avengers. It came out. I saw it. Robert Downey Jr. No, we're going back to John Steed and maybe Emma Peel. Patrick McNee in the 60s portrayed the suave, sophisticated spy in a, well, a bizarro, campy spy series called The Avengers, which is now uh, a cult, ran for years. There was a very, very disappointing Mainly because I, I think the film just lost control of what it wanted to do. I think it was recut by the studio. Yeah. It made no sense. Even though I thought Rafe Fiennes as John Steed was was very yeah. good. Uma Thurman was a, a great yeah, MP. There was nothing wrong with the casting in that, but it it was one of those films that was taken out of the director's hands because the American studio went... We don't get this because apparently the original shooting script was very, very British. Yeah. And it, it, which is what the Avengers should be. It should feel very, very British. The studio chopped it, reshot stuff, juggled things around and just created a mess that didn't know what it was. I mean, I know that there were some episodes of the Avengers series that were so bizarre and out there. And it was part of the charm of it that sometimes it didn't make any sense. But when it came to the film, it didn't make sense for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be interested to see the Avengers. Clearly, they can't call it that now. I would imagine it would go by something like Peel and Steed or Steed and Peel. Sounds like uh, Key and Peel now, but um, I think they'd have to find a, a new name for it. Yeah, No, scratch that. They will have to find a new name. So. Mickey Down and Conrad Kay, who scripted Industry, have reportedly penned a pilot for the series. And Sex Education Director Ben Taylor is on board as a co-creator. Uh, Taylor's the plan is that Taylor will direct the series and executive produce. This prod is a project that has been circling for quite some time. It was previously rumored to be a HBO, but it's not clear where the show will end up this time as the talks are still continuing for now. I'd like to see it reinterpreted for a modern yeah. era, but at the same time, I'd like it to have that timeless feel that even though it was it was made in the 60s and it kind of hints that it's set in the 60s, you can watch the Avengers and go, well, actually... This could just be an alternate reality. And it's just got the fun vibe. If, you, if you've never seen the TV series, The Avengers, if you've got BritBox or got access to BritBox, there's loads of them on there, from the old black and white episodes to the Technicolor ones. Marvellous show. I love revisiting episodes of The Avengers. 
So he spent the last few years in DC land, particularly with the Shazam films. David S. Sandberg is going back to his starting genre, really, which was horror, with an adaptation of the classic horror video game, Until Dawn. A video game, I might add, that I played and thoroughly enjoyed. He's collaborating with Annabelle creation writer Gary Dorberman. Didn't he do the Salem's Lot, which is buried somewhere? Wasn't that him? Yes. To adapt the 2015 game, which is it's a kind of a pastiche of all the all the horror elements. Um, teenagers in a mountain retreat, they have to basically work out who a mysterious killer is. There is a cannibalistic Wendigo and beasts all over the place. Good fun game. As it already is a pastiche of, of horror films, it kind of falls into that kind of cabin in the woods territory where you're going to have to do something very, very different about it to, mm. to make it work as a movie, as a game. You saw all the tropes, but I, I'm not sure. I, I like the game, so I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. And I like uh, Sandberg as a director. I'll be down for that one. Um, as long as it's handled, like you say, in the correct manner that it needs to be. Otherwise, it might just come across as a carbon copy of other horror films that you've already yeah. seen. Because that's the whole point of the game. <laughs> You're supposed to recognise these tropes because you, you've seen them before and you're interacting with them. Now, there's been a lot of rumours around Star Wars ever since the news of The Mandalorian and Grogu last week. And most of the rumours have been negative about the other projects that there's been no development on. And we touched on a Obey Chinois backlash from a comment that was taken completely out of context last week. But there's been rumours that her film has been shut down uh, oh, really? with so-called insider sources saying, oh, yeah, nothing's, it's, it's been shelved and nothing's happening with it. Well, that's been debunked. So never trust anyone who says, I have sources inside. And I'm talking about play, like news outlets like Freaking Robot and, you know, that, that kind of nonsense garbage sites that always claim that they've got insiders who tell them all these secrets. And it turned out to be nonsense. The rumor emerged suggesting that in the wake of the announcement of Jon Favreau's Mandalorian Grogu, Sharman Obey Chinoy's untitled New Jedi Order film had been delayed indefinitely. The apparent reason for the delay, creative differences with the film's writer Stephen Knight. The Peaky Blinders creator is penning the film, which will see Daisy Ridley reprise the role of Rey. News outlet io9 spoke with their own source at Lucasfilm, who nixed that rumour right in the bud. They said that the rumour was false. Knight is still working to write and be part of the process, and the company is waiting on his latest draft right now. So, again, never trust anonymous sources out there. Wait until there's official announcements. We will always say when stuff is rumoured, you know, trust us when we say stuff, because if it's not being confirmed, we will say that it's just a rumour. Take it with a pinch of salt. It's our pinch of salt corner. So at the moment, just because Mandalorian Grogu is the next thing to go into production doesn't mean any of the other Star Wars films are being completely scrapped. It just means that they're working on them because we don't want a deluge of them all at the same time. So they've now got yeah, a bit so more breathing space. Time. Now that you know the Mandalorian Grogu will be the next film, we can have breathing space before they get this film right. We'll see what happens. I'm going to take a, a quick step into Pinch of Salt Corner. We know there are talks for a Spider-Man 4 with the return of, I wouldn't say everybody's favourite Spidey. I was not going to say that. But uh, our most recent Spidey. Our beloved Spidey, yeah. A rumour that seems to be circulating about the director for the upcoming film. And it seems as though, and I think we mentioned this before Christmas, Drew Goddard seems to be top of the list to take over as director. Now, Drew Goddard, 
worked on the original Netflix TV series. Previously, you'd known him from Cabin in the Woods, uh, mm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, etc., etc. But he jumped ship to do what was going to be Sinister Six. So he has an interest in Spider-Man. What throws me out on that rumor is that apparently Drew Goddard is one of the writers in James Gunn's writer's room over at DC. So we'll take it with an ample pinch of salt until we know for certain, and we'll let you know. If it is, it does turn out to be true. It's the pinch of salt that adds the perfect seasoning to a great oh, I like steak. That. very poetic. You know, there's one project reboot that I will always be excited for. And every time there's much further development on this, I get more and more excited. It's the reboot of one of my most beloved films of my youth. Is it? Can, can, I, can I hazard a guess? Is it you Tron? Can, yes, go on. Uh, well, no, but that, oh. that is getting me excited. <laughs> okay. Another beloved film from your youth. We do know that that starts shooting this like from this week. So Tron Aries is on its way. But it's Highlander. Yes. Over the past few, well, over the past decade, there's been various rumours. At one point, Ryan Reynolds was attached, which got my got me exploding with excitement. But then he departed the project, moved into other hands. But in more recent years, we've had the talks that Chad Stelsky is going to take control of it. And Henry Cavill is going to be playing Connor McLeod. Stahelski has confirmed this week that after nearly a decade in development, his Highlander remake is now officially the next film that he is going to be doing. The studio has given the project a green light. It's happening, guys. It's happening. This film is coming. Henry Cavill is still on board to play the lead role. We don't know exactly what direction he's going in. We know from earlier reports with Stahelski talking about it that he doesn't just want to do a direct remake. But he's drawing in various aspects of the law from the TV show, the sequels, etc. to craft his own take on the property. He has confirmed in previous reports as well that um, the music of Queen will feature within the film. Because in it, I think he said something along the lines of, you can't have Highlander without Queen, can you? Can I, can I say it, Andy? Can I say it? Yep. Yes, there will be only one. <laughs> it's magic. Well, a kind of. <laughs> oh the love well it's not the only news about Stahelski this week because no. he's now been officially set with a pact between him and Lionsgate that gives him creative oversight over the whole Highlander franchise so even if there's spin-off shows films etc he will have oversight and John Wick now you would have thought he was already creative oversight on John Wick anyway given yeah. he created however Continental was nothing to do with him. He had no involvement in that. His name might have been tagged in the credits as executive producer, but that was just because he was the creator of it. We know from a separate report this week that star Ian McShane hasn't watched The Continental and is very dismissive about the show itself. He didn't see the point as no one involved in the John Wick universe was actually connected to it. Kind of enjoyed it myself, but I can see the point. So this means that Stahelski is going to be the shepherd of both John Wick and the Highlander universes. And in his words, I'm pleased to be able to grow my relationship with Lionsgate in this new oversight role for the John Wick universe and its further expansion. John Wick is so close to my heart and to be able to continue shepherding it will be a blasphemy. I'm so happy to be launching another franchise with Highlander, a world that is so rich with engaging stories to be told. Uh, talking of which, Ballerina is released this year and I'm looking forward to trailers. Yes, early June. So we should be getting decent trailer drops. Pretty soon on that one. Now, you enjoyed the third one a lot more than I did. Did I? But because I wasn't 
that much of a fan, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be dismissive about the next piece of news. Okay. And that is, Bill and Ted star Alex Winter has said that the writers, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson, have come up with ideas for a fourth film. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump in on that one. I, I, I love the Bill and Ted movies. You were right. I did enjoy uh, number three much more than you did. And, and upon watching it again, still enjoyed it. It's got issues. I made notes. But I don't want to see it. I mean, I will see it when it when it appears. But to be honest, I think that story's been told. The bell's been rung. Final shot has been called. Unless it does something very, very different, it'd be interesting to take the story with the daughters, which was sort of hinted at. But I don't know. I'm 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 not as excited as I should be. My problems with Face the Music was it was very nostalgia heavy. Hmm. Because it had been so long since the Bill and Ted's film, I think it was one of them that it had to be nostalgia heavy to basically remind people what they loved about Bill and Ted's. A next film gives them a chance to grow it a bit and do something with it. Uh, Winter has said the movie will only happen if he, the writers, and Keanu Reeves are all on board with the script. And in his words, we're tinkering with the fourth movie idea that all of us like. And the guys are going to write, so we'll see. It takes a time to get these things going, and we never want them to do them unless they're great. They, referring to Solomon, Matheson and Reeves, feel the same way. It has to be right. We love the movies because they're oddball and they're not typical mainstream films. They've never been cash grab movies. Nobody has gotten rich off Bill and Ted. We really do make them sincerely from a place of love and interest. So at least they're going the right way with it, that they want to make sure that they want to make it rather than how much money can we make from it. And talking of money, because... He has all the money in the world now. Uh, James Cameron, according to Sam Worthington, James Cameron's Avatar 3 will start shooting next month. Now, I'm pretty sure that they shot the majority of, of the uh, of the film already because it's like animation. You, you shoot in front of a green screen for six months and then the artists do it. So I, I'm not quite sure what they're going to be shooting because apparently it was originally considered everything was being shot back to back. Now... Weird conspiracy theories. Yeah, go on. I like weird conspiracy theories. And have you seen this weird conspiracy theory that all the Taylor Swift fans are coming up with, that they reckon Taylor Swift wrote Argyle, the upcoming film from Matthew Vaughan? Um, no. Tell me more. Conspiracy theories come about because the film itself, yeah, it's about like a, a novelist who is writing a fictional character who turns out to actually be a real character in real life that she's somehow managing to you tell You mean like the Romancing of. the Stone? Yes, it's very romancing the stone. But the, the real life mystery is about who actually wrote the book because the film is based on a book that's literally just been published and is apparently just a more straightforward thriller by an author also named Ellie Conway, which is the name of the character in the film. So no one knows who this Ellie Conway first-time writer actually is. Uh, the manuscript was just sold for a 200 million deal for the film rights several years ago and Matthew Vaughan's made the film out of it. Taylor Swift fans have come to the conclusion that this mysterious Ellie Conway is a pseudonym for Taylor Swift. And their reasoning okay. is because the posters and the film feature heavily the same kind of cat that Taylor Swift has being carried <laughs> around in a carry-all bag that Taylor Swift has. Almost as though there's no other cats on the whole planet that uh, <laughs> could have been bought for this. I mean, it's you bizarre. see, that's why conspiracy theories, they're fun for about two seconds and, and then I get so frustrated with them. 
after that. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist in any stretch of the imagination, other than we know that Paul McCartney is dead after uh, and was replaced by a lookalike <laughs> back in the 60s. Apart from that, all conspiracy theories are, 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 are rubbish. The Paul is dead one is fantastic to read up on. There's there's websites devoted to digging into all the conspiracy out there. And I love it. It's it's hilariously brilliant. <laughs> you know, there was going to be a film called Paul is Dead. Uh, yes. And it was going to star uh, Hugh Grant as Paul McCartney. <laughs> that, that still needs to be greenlit. That still needs to be released. Because in this day and age, Hugh Grant is just marvellously cast. Because he can play all the weird. Yes. In an interview with Rolling Stone, however, Matthew Vaughan has shut down the rumours. In his words, I'm not a big internet guy, and it was actually my daughter who came up to me, this is the power of celebrity in the internet, and said, you never told me Taylor wrote the book. And I'm looking at her going, what are you talking about? Taylor Swift wrote the book? She didn't write the book. And I was laughing because it's like, it's not true. She didn't write the book. But my daughter was so convinced of it. There is a real book, and it's a really good book. And there is an Ellie Conway who wrote the book, but it's not Taylor Swift. And I say that because imagine Taylor Swift has a load of people trying to jump on her bandwagon left, right, and center. I don't want to be part of that club. I did read the conspiracies and I was like, wow, they don't leave a stone unturned, but it's not Taylor Swift. She definitely didn't write the book. Now, obviously, the Swifties were gone. Ah, that's what they'd say if they wanted to keep it secret. Of course they'd Ooh. say that. <laughs> so Argyle has potential to be a film that becomes hugely successful because the wrong audience are going to see it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone whether she's in Deadpool 3 or not. They just seem to think that she's, she's part of everything these days. I mean, great, great for Taylor Swift. I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan, but I think, I think she deserves all the credit she gets, let alone if she wins the American election. But why does the same cat turn up? And that's what the Swifties are obsessed with. Why is it the same cat is a huge feature? Well, it might be, and this is just throwing a dart at a wall, the fact that Vaughan and his wife, Claudia Schiffer, own a Scottish fold cat themselves. And that's why that's the cat breed that has been used in the film because he loves those cats so uh come on guys if you've got to come up with a conspiracy theory at least check out the facts side of it first and see if you can extrapolate from there like like we said the paul is dead conspiracy theory go on check it out if you've never heard of it go search for that <laughs> online it's an absolute treasure trove <laughs> hey do you want to know what ryan coogler's up to what's coogler doing he's reteaming with michael b jordan yes the black panther mm director has a top secret new project in the works so the director previously brought us both black panther films creed fruitful station is in development via proximity media and we know that it's going to be a genre feature with period elements to the story i know that doesn't narrow it down much but rumor has it is that it's going to be some kind of a vampire movie uh, i'm interested because those two paired together delivered some great films absolute great films creed was so much better than anyone it really expected and you know we're getting more films in the creed universe coming up i'm excited for that other thing that i'm kind of excited for we mentioned this film many okay. many 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 moons ago when it originally went into production and then it all went quiet and i think i commented only a few weeks ago i was like we've not heard anything from that and that's adam sandler's new netflix film spaceman oh space one of his series right, okay yeah is this, oh, I thought it was a comedy. No, it's a, it's he's a lone astronaut in deep space who's uh, convinced something else is on the ship with him. And it just went quiet on it. But 
It's now got a release date. In that typical Netflix fashion, they make something behind the scenes and don't really reveal anything until literally a month and a half away. March the 1st is the date it's due to drop, and I am intrigued. I'm always intrigued when Adam Sandler does something a bit more serious, even just with light touches of comedy. It's when he does his all-out comedies that I just turn my nose up in it and just go, that's not for me. But I've been so looking forward to this one because I like the sci-fi concept of it. So fingers crossed... I mean, this is another one to my birthday, birthday week because it's my birthday oh. on second of March. First of March is lined up beautifully for me at the moment. Hey, so look, we talked about it on last week's reviews. Echo, I've still not finished it, but thoroughly enjoying everything I've seen so far. It was great to see Daredevil back on the screen. And we did talk about the Daredevil new series that it had kind of been scrapped and restarted. The title Daredevil Born Again seems more prophetic. Mm-hmm. Production resumes by the time you've listened to this. It would have been in the past on Monday, but for us, slightly in the future. Some little quick pieces of news to round up the news items. Jason Reitman, his new films, SNL 1975, which will tell the origins of the Saturday Night Live TV show, has scored a bit of casting. Gabrielle LaBelle from The Fablemans, Cooper Hoffman from Licorice Pizza, and Rachel Sennett have been cast in this film that he wrote alongside Gil Keenan who co-wrote Ghostbusters Afterlife with him. And it's based on the pair's extensive interviews with all of the show's living cast, scribes and crew. Saturday Night Live is very hit or miss. It's very scattershot. But it's where did all that come from and why has it become a success? And it's all down to how it launched. LaBelle's going to play Saturday Night Live creator Norm Michaels. Hoffman is former NBC executive Dick Eberson. And Senate is going to be playing Michaels' ex-wife, Rosie Schuster. Um, I'm interested in this. I'm I'm pretty much interested in anything that Reitman churns out. And I think it's an interesting period of TV history to look at. There's a rumour going around, and it's one of those I've had a look to substantiate, but I can't find it. So whether it's it's Pinch of Salt Corner or Pixar are further ahead with this than we anticipated, but they are in production of The Incredibles, Part three. Yeah, uh, apparently this is a long way into production with even talk of a release date for next year. Other than that, all I know is that Brad Bird potentially returned to do this. When we hear more, we'll let you know. Uh, Some bad news came this this week. Fans of Schmigadoon, there will not be a season three. No! I heard you told me this. It's Blew my day. The critically acclaimed musical comedy series is ended after its two-season run. I, I can get that it was only ever going to be a short concept kind of show because there's only so much you can do with it. But I did feel that there might have been room for a third season to yeah, finish the idea off. Uh, apparently, progress had already been made on the new run with the entire season, including 25 new songs already written. In the words of series co-creator and showrunner Cinco Paul, we unfortunately won't be making it, such is life. It's an absolute shame. If you've not checked out Schmigadoon, get it checked out, because it, if you, whether you love or hate musicals, it's just a joy from start to finish. Yeah. It's so creative, so much fun. There's a story going around this week for Doctor Who fans that Millie Gibson, who landed as Ruby Sunday in the new Doctor Who series, isn't sticking around for very long. Yes, she Ooh. made her debut in the Christmas special, but it appears there are rumours, and, and the reviews for her were really positive, but according to some sources, the actress is set to be replaced in the show's second series by anchor star Verada Sithu, 
A decision was reportedly made by showrunner Russell T. Davis after filming had finished on the show's upcoming season one. Apparently, she'll only be in a handful of season two's episodes with a new companion being brought in for that season. It's been reported in different ways from different sites, so I do believe that there's some truth to it. Reasons why, we don't know. We'll wait for official confirmation from RTD, but it's looking like it's going to be a one season and done companion, which is a shame because good chemistry with Shooty Gatwa in that first episode. Let's see. And at least they've said, according to some of the reports, they've said that the episodes that she'll be in in the second season will be a way to tie up her plot arcs and her her thread and her journey. So it won't just be companion goes and you go, well, what happened? It will resolve itself. And, you know, as with anything who, there's always a door left open somewhere for someone to return to their role at any point. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be the last that we'll ever see of that character. The Madam Web film, which <laughs> which lands with a thump next, week, Craven. Next, next month. Next month. It can't come soon enough, Andy. It can't come soon enough. Well, I don't know if you'll be sad about this, but <laughs> apparently it's going to be a standalone film. Oh, what, what, no tie into the uh, MCU? No tie into the MCU. And according to suggestion, no tie into Venom either. Now, that's either a clever bit of marketing where they're going, hey, we've got total faith in this film that can, it can do a standalone, or <laughs> the polar opposite. But then again, we had Mobius. Yes. Which I lasted about 20 minutes of to be honest. In the words of the director, she's definitely in a standalone world. I was able to just have free reign and let the movie be what it needed to be as opposed to trying to force it into something else. That was a gift in a way to be able to take something and bring a fresh and I hope original take to it. It won't be fresh. It won't be original. It'll stink. We don't judge, Andy. We, we, we don't judge. <laughs> I've got another, another story before we go. Yep. Free Kiss, Christopher Landon is on to direct a werewolf thriller, so count me in, called Big bad. I've got a lot of time for Landon. A lot of time for Landon. Almost as much time as I have for Radio Silence, who um, I checked out the trailer for Abigail this week, and I am so down with that. I don't know whether you've seen that one. No, no, I'll check it out. Uh, vampire ballerina girl taking people out who are locked into a giant mansion. Marvellous. Okay, yeah, it looks like that. everything that you expect from Radio Silence. Final bit of news. Now, this has come back. I remember last year when we talked about Alec Baldwin? Yeah. And the the fatal shooting on the set of Rust, and it looked like everything had been like resolved, like in the legalities. Well, a grand jury recommendation, after being presented with new investigation into the incident, has now resulted in Baldwin being indicted once more, and he's expected to be charged by New Mexico prosecutors, who initially dropped the criminal case to review new evidence. Uh, Baldwin potentially facing a sentence of 18 months in prison if convicted for involuntary manslaughter. As the producer of this film, he had overall responsibility to ensure all safety features were implemented. And apparently there's reports come that there was other aspects on the set that weren't being controlled properly. And he has to take ultimate responsibility. So um, Alec Baldwin might be having his time in court. We'll keep you posted. On that one, before we close down uh, the news, let's have a quick mention of the 13 options for this year's BAFTA nominees, which is only, well, it's less than a month away. And it's pretty much, we're pretty much seeing no the same names that we've already seen in other award ceremonies. I mean, we covered the Globes on last week's episode. But, you know, best film, you've got Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Holdovers, and Anatomy of a Fall. 
everyone's saying Oppenheimer is probably going to sweep the board on most, but the BAFTAs usually takes a different stance. I think the BAFTAs might lean closer to the maybe Flower Moon or Holdovers. Yeah, director choices are All of Us Strangers, Andrew Hay, Anatomy of a Fall, Justin Trait, The Holdovers, Alexander Payne, Maestro Bradley Cooper, Oppenheimer, of course, Christopher Nolan, and The Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer. I've not I don't know much about Zone of Interest at this stage, and I'm a big fan of Jonathan Glazer. Um, actors in leading role, Bradley Cooper in Maestro, Coleman Domingo in Rustin, Paul Giamatti in Holdovers, Barry Keegan in Saltburn, Killian Murphy, Oppenheimer, and T.O.U. in Past Lives. I'd love Keegan to get it for Saltburn. Leading actress, Fantasia Barino for The Colour Purple. Sandra Hula, Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, Vivian Opera for Rye Lane, like that film a lot, Margot Robbie for Barbie, and Emma Stone for Poor Thing. Uh, so that's the four main categories. Obviously, supporting roles, actor and actress, you've got names like Robert De Niro, Robert Downey Jr., Jacob Elordi, Ryan Gosling, Paul Mescal, Dominic Sessa, Emily Blunt, Danielle Brooks, Claire Foy, Sandra Hula, Rosamund Pike, and Davine Joy Randolph. Um, some great names. I mean, None of these is a surprise, and I'm expecting pretty much the same next week yep. when the Oscars shortlist is announced. Animated film. Yeah, Boy in the Heron, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nuggets. Not convinced on Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget being in there, yeah. but I think I think it's got a nod because it's the British Awards. Yes. Elemental, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And the best best film in not, not in an English language, I think Society of the Snow might be a shoo-in for the BAFTAs on that one. I mean, Anatomy of a Falls in there, and that's been getting recognised. Yeah left, right and centre, but I think Society of the Snow or Past Lives are the most likely ones to win in the BAFTAs. The Zone of Interest and 20 Days in Maripol as well. The full list is available online if you want to go digging down through special effects, sound, etc, etc. But on the core main awards, it's all the names that we're seeing coming up in other awards at the moment. Uh, we're still waiting for our BAFTA tickets to turn up, aren't we, Andy? Um, so yep. if we're not there, we'll still be reporting about it. But where are our tickets, BAFTA? And that's the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favorite podcast platform, leaving a like, and remember to hit that subscription button. You can get in touch with us by social media channels, Film File UK. We're mostly prominent on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. Or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear thoughts on film. Love to disagree. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week's Deep Dive is the 1991 Terry Gilliam film, The Fisher King. Jack Lucas was chasing his dreams. I'm out there every day trying to figure out why... No matter what I have, it feels like I have nothing. I may be going out on a limb here, but you don't seem like a happy camper. Perry's dreams ah! were chasing him. I thought you saw him. Saw who? The Red Knight. You're out of your mind! Bingo! Yeah! Come on, Jack! I was out with Perry! The moron? It's not a moron. Let's do it right here. Let's go to that place of splendor okay, in the grass. Jack. My thought that if I could help him in some way, get him this girl that he loves, that maybe things would change for me. And this is Perry. Perry. Perry, Perry. No, just Perry. Like Moses. <laughs> I have never been through a dating period. It 
It's a disgusting process. This is gonna be rough. Jack Lucas needed something to believe in. Yes! And he found it in someone he couldn't believe. Say, anybody up for Chinese? <laughs> Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, in a new film from the director of Time Bandits and Brazil. You find some pretty wonderful things in the trash. The Fisher King. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, you fabulous guy. Don't hug me in public oh, again. No. Okay. Directed by Terry Gilliam, written by Richard Legravenas. The film starred Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges and is a 1991 fantasy comedy drama that tells the story of a radio shock jock played by Jeff Bridges, who tries to find redemption by helping a man whose life has inadvertently shattered. It's a film that explores the intermingling of New York City's usually strictly separated social classes and is a modern day grail quest fused with dark drama, timeless fantasy, and a romantic comedy. The film had five nominations, including Best Actor for Robin Williams, Best Original Screenplay by Lagravenus, and it won Best Supporting Actress for Mercedes Rule. And I think Andy and I both agree when we say, we're both fans of Terry Gilliam, that this is probably his most mature film to date. Yes. I mean, Gilliam, who previously... Yeah, was part of the Python team and went on to marvelous films like Brazil and uh, the <laughs> the notoriously over budget Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is an absolute treat and getting deep dived at some it, point. It as is, well. and you know what? And, and I think because of uh, Munchausen, Gilliam got painted as being difficult, got painted as being a, a director who would spend outlandishly, uh, and because of that. He basically wanted to do a film that was low on special effects, that had mm. a modest budget, and a film that he wasn't involved with with the screenplay. Yeah, I mean, Gilliam himself always had three rules when it came to filmmaking. Never do anyone's script but his own. Never work for a major studio. And never work in America. And then to make The Fisher King, he violated all three of his own rules. And he's delivered, like you say, his most mature film. It's still got fantasy elements. There's images of a red knight who pursues Parry, the character played by the great, late, great Robin Williams. But at its core, this is a film about how lives can be permanently changed and damaged through inconsequential actions. How the homeless of society are ignored, but all have their own stories that we should listen to. How grief can break a person's mind. And it's a film about forgiveness. And it's about confronting demons. And it's a film about love. It encompasses so many different aspects and themes, but merged perfectly into one beautiful story of a man whose mind was broken and he, be he lost everything, his fiance and everything, became homeless, lost his mind, became a new person, but needs to reconcile with the events of his past before he can become a new person again. But in order to do that, he has to confront the person who was kind of responsible for everything that he lost. And the, I need to mention on the forgiveness thing that the, I love the whole fact that at the start of the film, when Jack, the shock jock DJ played by Bridges, is at the peak of his career and he's being offered the key role in a brand new sitcom. And he's so against the fact that this character is going to have the catchphrase of forgive me. But the film itself is all about he needs forgiveness so he can move on with his life and he can get back 
to be in success because after the events of his honor rant about uh, you know the rich and uh, we need to take them all down leading to one of his listeners who's a bit unhinged shooting up a bar that is filled with all the yuppies of the era and that puts him into shock jock dj has led to this killings and he loses his career and three years later he's now shacked up with his girlfriend above the video store that she runs uh, he's an alcoholic and wanders the streets looking disheveled only to be rescued when some rich kids go to beat up some homeless people by parry one of the victims of the shooting and realizing what his offhand comment actually did to other people there's so much depth you can explore this film from so many ways. I think in the hands of another director, I think we would have got a very different film. I think we've got a, a comedy drama that, while dealing with heartbreak, would have certainly pushed up the, the romance angle. But I think with mm. Gilliam, we got something that had some real depth to it, especially the imagery of the Fisher King, which Parry, played by Robin Williams, uses to shield his haunted, terrifying memory about the death of his wife and i think gilliam's touch on this which is very deft is to play with imagery in a way that another director might have just made a much more straightforward film yeah and every time that parry is reminded of part of his original life be it his name being mentioned or jack trying to reconcile his own personal demons referencing something he recognizes jack from the offset of their relationship because in their very first encounter when he wakes up in the basement he actually says like i know who you are jack he knows who he is and so he knows what he's responsible for but that starts the images of like the the red knight which is his own demons attacking him and he doesn't want to accept what it is and as the film plays out it's always this progression of like in order for him to move on he needs he needs to accept the red knight he needs to accept his previous life. But part of that is, in his mind, he's become an Arthurian knight. And he's made his band of fellow homeless into other Arthurian knights to go on quests and do things. And the quest that he has is he seeks the grail. And the grail, it's just a trophy in a photograph that he saw in a magazine that a rich guy has in his mansion. But he's obsessed with it and he needs to get that grail in order to become himself again toward it in order to move on the key thing in this and i said it's a love story it's the his obsession with the awkward lydia a worker that he follows and he knows her routine completely and it creates some of the most beautiful moments in this film from the initial following her with a like i mean amanda Plummer on absolute magnificent form yeah. as the awkward lydia the first time that he's following her and showing Jack what her routine is, and you get that central station waltzing ballroom moment where all the crowds suddenly start dancing with each other because that's how he how he envisions the world when she's in his presence. Even though she doesn't know who he is at that point, him knowing her own actions and waltzing through the crowds, oh, beautiful moment. And that's what I mean by Gilliam coming on board this film and and taking it into those beautifully shot fantasy sequences that's the gilliam touch he takes he, he takes the source material the original script and and develops it into something much much more and the and also he, he gets great performances he gets as you mentioned mm. uh, uh amanda Plummer is always is always a joy to watch but 
Robin Williams, this increasingly uh, um, animated man who is touched by grief, living this fantasy line. And, and Williams is just this ball of energy that as the truth becomes known, as the realization becomes clear, explodes, reach boiling point, And it is fantastic. And, and looking back, the guy should have won an Oscar for this role because yeah. it's not just his stand-up shtick, which he got with Good Morning Vietnam. This is a, a character who has got so many depths to it. And Jeff Bridges, an actor I've always loved. I can watch anything with Jeff Bridges in because everything he does, I think he's 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 fantastic in. And this is Bridges at the height of his his stardom when he was uh, at his his highest peak. And what a joy to watch! This is a beautiful, touching, odd comedy, romantic Arthurian fantasy of a film. In the only way that I think could have been made with someone like Terry Gilliam. With regards Robin Williams in this, like you say, you know, he get he gets to play every aspect that he could do as an actor in the direct interactions between him and Plummer. That awkward dinner date is a marvelously put together scene. Uh, you get the feeling that there's some elements of improvisation going on in there because the two play so well together. They're the perfect match. And it ends with the sidewalk walking home and that marvelous marvellous declaration of love in the I don't drink coffee lines. And I had tears in my eyes at the end of that. It's the most beautiful walk at night between a couple who are awkwardly falling for each other that you will ever see on film. Amanda Plummer not believing that anyone wants to be with her except just for a one-night stand and then they'll get ditched. And him not wanting that one-night stand and turning her down because he doesn't drink coffee. Uh, you ha if you've never seen this film, you have to check it out genuinely you have to watch it I, i'd not re-watched this for at least two decades but when it came out i remember watching it and loving it and i watched it multiple times you know it was one of them that every time someone else was around at the house as i put the vhs in we're watching fisher king everyone should experience this and this week re-watching it it reminded me of why i used to obsess about making sure everyone watched it because it's such like we say a mature terry gilliam film it's the first film that terry gilliam made that didn't feature any of the monty python team it's got performances from a marvellous cast throughout, be it the, th the three central roles of uh, Bridges, Plummer and Williams, or the side roles of all the various like other homeless people who you'll have seen from other things, and they all get a chance to shine in this. All the way through this film, I was hooked, I was gripped, I knew what was going to happen, but I was charmed entirely. It's a marvellous, marvellous film about forgiveness, love, life, grief and happiness. As Andy said, I can't add much more to it because it is absolutely well worth seeing. If you want to catch it, I do know there was a Criterion re-release last year, mm. but Andy, where else can we find it? If you're lucky enough to have a PlayStation Plus subscription and have access to Sony Pictures Core, it is currently one of the 100 titles that are available for PlayStation Plus users to watch for free. So, uh Get on that. If not, pick up that Criterion Edition. Treat yourself. You know you deserve it. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. A film that we've both seen and stuff that Andy's seen. Andy, shall we kick off with a film that we've both seen? I think we should, rather than holding it over till later. Let's talk about The Holdovers. See what you did there. 
the holdovers. There'll be just one boys holding over this Christmas. Please, pretend to be a human being. Mr. Hunnam isn't easy to like. Do you think I want to be babysitting you? I could have been spending the rest of my vacation reading mystery novels. But the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Entertainment Weekly, and top critics everywhere are falling in love with the holdovers. You just earned yourself a detention. Being here with you is already one big detention. Son of a... That's another detention! Director Alexander Payne reunites with Paul Giamatti for the first time since Sideways. And the result is pure movie magic. That was just lovely. Is that an actual compliment? The Holdovers is one of the finest of Payne's career. It's raucously funny and irresistibly entertaining. It's a perfect 10. I think you're erratic and belligerent. Are you trying to look down my shirt? No. <laughs> yes, but you've got time to turn things around. I was going to tell you the same thing. <laughs> the Holdovers. When I first started watching this film, and I'm a massive fan of Alexander Payne, for a moment I thought, hey, this is a film that was actually made in the time that it was set. This feels authentically like a 1970s film. The film stock, the colour grade, the aesthetics of this film really do feel like a film made in the 1970s. And if you've been listening to this show for long enough, you know what a fan I am of 1970s film. So what's it about? A rebellious pupil, Angus, played by Dominic Sessa, and a loathed classic teacher, Mr. Hunman, played gloriously by Paul Giamatti, reteaming with pain after 2004's brilliant Sideways, are forced to stay over at a prestigious boarding school for Christmas. And it's one of those boarding schools where it's full of the upper classes, the ones who don't have to try hard to be able to succeed in life because everything is laid out for them. And in classic style, this is a film about relationships, about two people who don't initially get on growing in some way without giving too much away. This is beautifully acted. Uh, it goes left of center in many, many different ways. It doesn't go where you expect it to. And it just has that fantastic mise-en-scene of the 70s, which just had me hooked. Yeah, right from the opening. The opening credits has got, like, crackles to the static of the, the speakers Yeah, popping. I loved all that. There's the little blemishes of film grain. There's the old logos that they're deliberately using as well to introduce it before it becomes the film itself. And whilst the film itself is done with the typical cinemat cinematography sheen that you'd expect from a modern film, by that point, it already feels 70s. The colour palette is 70s. The locations are all 70s. Everything feels right for the era. This is a film that we've been, I've been looking forward to. I know we've both been looking forward to it because we're both fans of Alexander Payne. Up until this point, Sideways has been my favourite Payne movie. It's not that he's delivered rubbish, because even Downsizing, which I think is his weakest film, yeah, it's, not a it's, film still, intri it's still it intriguing is yeah, to carry not a film that I love. This, I think, is above sideways. It's above election. This was just, it was right from the start. I was just captivated by Giamatti's character, his very curmudgeonly teacher, who who's very like a disciplinarian. You know, he, he doesn't like frivolry and he's got disdain for his students, basically. He's forced into looking after the holdovers which are the kids who have no homes to go back to over Christmas, either because their rich families are exploring the world or they just don't want them back in some cases. And after starting off with a whole group of them and him showing his absolute dislike for being in that situation, when a chunk of them get to jet away 
well, helicopter away to go on a skiing trip, leaving him just in the charge of Angus Tully, playing Idonic Cesar. He reluctantly starts to connect with the boy and in doing so starts to realise that he was that student himself. And it's that whole thing about you forget where you came from. You need to remember where you came from before you can appreciate what other people are going through. It's worth noting this is now on my Christmas rewatch list because this is set over Christmas. Yes, it is. This yeah. is a festive film. It answers the question of films that don't necessarily have to be festive. This is a festive film for me because it not only is set at Christmas, but it covers that whole family aspect. And in this case, the fact that none of them have a family. And we need to put a mention as well for Devine Joy Randolph. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say she needs mentioning because she's a, a, a massive part of this. And she plays Mary, the school cook. In a film with great performances, she holds her own. She's magnificent in this. She uh, uh, gives a stoic, solid performance. And it's a film that doesn't really surprise you. It does what you in, it intends to do, but it does it, you know, people who initially dislike each other finding something in each other. And yes, that is a, a, a formulaic film. It certainly is a formulaic film from, from the 1970s, for instance. But it's like he did with Sideways. He, he takes it into directions that, that keep you guessing, that are always the emotional heart of where the story is going. Yeah. It's one of those films that they say when they, they say they don't make films like this anymore. Well, I'm, I'm, they do. They really yeah. do. They have a film that feels like it was made in the 70s, has that, that feel all the way through, and, and just proves that they still make films like they used to. Maybe we were speaking about uh, Fisher King with Robin Williams earlier. This has echoes of another Robin Williams film in it, Dead Poets Society. Yeah. Halfway through the film, I suddenly went, you know what? This sits alongside Dead Poets Society for me, for that kind of look at teacher-student relationship. But this is a different angle. This is a teacher who has disdain for his students rather than one that wants his students to succeed. But he grows to become more like the Robin Williams character towards the end of it. It's a marvellous tale about people and this is what Payne yeah. does so well is he just explores he explores lives and explores what it means to connect with people about schmidt is probably like a real good comparison because about schmidt was a very offhand person who doesn't really connect with people and how they come to connect and this film is all about giamatti's character realizing you know what influence he can have and what he can do for these students who he kind of forgot a lot of them don't have good lives outside of the school. The school is pretty much all that they've got. I think that this is deserving of any plaudits that it gets this year. And I it hope it picks up some good awards. I'm sure it will. It's well worth checking out. It's on limited release across cinemas at the moment. Everyone who I know has seen it has come away just feeling touched in one way or another from this film. It's funny. It's charming. It's heartfelt. It's emotional. It's everything that you want in this kind of movie. That's Holdovers. As you can tell, well worth seeing from these particular film geeks. Andy, what else have we got? So it's also been on limited cinema release and George Clooney's done a sports biopic called The Boys in the Boat. All right, boys, let's show what's in this book. The Boys in the Boat is about tough kids, but they were poor and hungry. Everybody else tires and they just get stronger. The stakes were much higher for them. It gave them an edge. The actual story of what they went through it was really spectacular. For all the people who didn't believe in you, I won! Yeah. 
The Boys in the Boat is an American biographical drama which is based on the book of the same name by Daniel James Brown. It tells the story of the rowing team from Washington State University who went on to represent the United States in the 1936 Olympic Games held in Berlin. Focusing primarily on Joe Rance, one of the working class students of the team who had abandonment issues through his family problems. It's one of those inspirational true stories about achieving your dreams. And despite playing a little too safe with the story, it does get the job done in delivering an enticing enough and heartwarming journey. In the more than capable hands of George Clooney, who directs here in a rather old school manner to suit the period, the film gets some wonderful performances from the central cast. And it manages to do what I didn't think was possible. It makes rowing look thrilling. Avoiding being too showy, the film has a touch of chariots of fire to it, delivering much in the same way as that classic did, with a slickness that raises it somewhat, with beautiful shots of the university, almost nail-biting moments on the water, and period-accurate representations of the Olympic arenas. Clooney, alongside cinematographer Martin Rue, who worked on Midnight Sky and Tender Bar with Clooney, certainly deliver on the visual style. Alexander de Platt's score complements the affair, even if it doesn't really lend any standout themes that remain with you afterwards. Callum Turner, in the role as Rance, delivers a heartfelt performance, capturing the drive and the determination of someone wanting to prove their worth, whilst reining in their anger and frustration. Joel Edgerton, as the coach of the team, Al Ulbrichson, maintains a stern, yet a welcoming and sometimes gentle presence as he pushes to make his team go from being seen as underdogs to getting the recognition that they deserve, despite the class divide that makes the sport favour the more wealthy school teams. There's a wonderful turn by Peter Guinness as George Yeomans Pocock, who, between designing the boats for the team, takes time to offer some sagely advice to Rance. The rest of the cast of the team and fellow students round things off well, but none of them steal the focus away from the core central trio. It's predictable and maybe a little too safe, but it's still a lovely reminder that sometimes films can be simple and captivate, especially when the inspirational tale is drawn from real life. I like Clooney as a director. He it ties into holdovers. He makes films that you think people don't make films like that anymore, and, and Clooney does. Yeah, Clooney makes these kind of feeling of films of like yesteryear and does them well it's a polished film is it anything new or fresh no but it's worth checking out and the final film that i've got this week it landed on netflix over the past few days and it's the directorial debut by daniel kaluuya and kibwe Tavares, and that is the kitchen looking forward to this one andy i know enough about it to have already sparked my interest will i enjoy it Good morning. This is the Lord Kitchen, live and direct. I'm getting out of this place. It's our home. She gets real. Saving myself. So where do you live? Kitchen. Really like what it says, like. Yeah. You say it for yourself. What's your name? You ain't built like them. I ain't got any works to go. What's he to you? 
friend of mine. Some friend. Go, go. Go, What's happening? I don't know what it's like, right? This is war. This British sci-fi drama is directed by Kibwe Tavares and Daniel Kaluuya from a screenplay by Kaluuya and Joe Moato. And it's a pretty solid calling card for the first-time directors, showcasing a strong flair and depth of story, even if it doesn't quite reach its potential overall. The setting is not-too-distant future London, in which social housing has been eradicated, with only one estate still standing, known as The Kitchen. Here, the residents refuse to abandon their homes, and have built up a very strong community that strives to avoid being forcibly evicted by the raids by an overbearing police force. In that community, people do what they can to get by, some forming gangs who raid for food and supplies from outside the community to share amongst the residents, such as Staples, played by Hope Ikopu Jr., who has one rule, you steal from others, but never from the community itself, and is kind of seen as an almost Robin Hood character. Then there are those who dream of escape, and one such person is Kane Robinson's Izzy, who works at a funeral home within the main city, saving money to eventually move to a new accommodation outside the kitchen. However, when he encounters the recently orphaned Benji at the funeral home that he works in, he reluctantly takes the boy under his wing and tries his best to guide him on the right path. But Benji also finds himself drawn to Staples, who offers him a place in his gang and a chance to strike back at the system that has clearly failed the young boy. The concept is great. Dystopian sci-fi always offers us a chance to explore social themes relevant to the world around us today. And this is a film that certainly spreads a first scattering of ideas. The budding mentorship between Izzy and Benji is played out beautiful, with suggestions of a larger reason that Izzy takes the boy under his wing, leading to some moments that will certainly create some lumps in throats or maybe specks of dust in eyes as the film progresses. The visual style is bleak, with a very similar aesthetic to Children of Men, and the contrast between the packed and crowded slum-like community of the kitchen and the wealthier world is wonderfully introduced in the early part of the film by way of following Izzy as he sets off to work. The slums, packed with rough-shod shelters and barrages of posters and signage, offering a better world, pave way via one small tunnel to clean, empty streets and wonderfully lit buildings. That moment alone was enough to make me interested, and from that point on, following Izzy's journey was so easy. There's a marvellous turn from Ian Wright as Lord Kitchener, the voice of the kitchen, a DJ running a pirate radio station for the people of the community and essentially being the soul of the ghetto. His moments on screen are fleeting, but his presence is felt throughout via his voiceovers and the music that he plays. The true sense of community is given extra weight during the brutal police raids where neighbours warn each other of the incoming forces and then all strive to get indoors and into safety, sometimes offering shelter to the others at the same time. This is a film that makes great use of the limited budget to deliver a strikingly political and socially aware story, tackling maybe one too many themes and messages to fit successfully into just one film. But it certainly delivers in the core tale of two lost souls finding what the community around them really means and connecting on a more personal level. Wonderful cast, heartfelt moments, and visually superb storytelling make this certainly worth a watch. That's the reviews. What have we got coming up in the next week, Andy? I know it's going to be a quiet one. So over the next week at cinemas, we've got All of Us Strangers, Baghead. Well, that sounds intriguing, actually. Baghead sounds pretty intriguing. Baghead sounds sounds intriguing. Uh, the Colour Purple, 
which uh, the trailers are, as we kind of expect, avoiding the fact it's a musical, because that's become the thing, that we don't advertise musicals as being musicals. And a film called Jackdaw is on limited release. On Now TV and Sky, Transformers Rise of the Beasts lands and Jesus Revolution. Over on Amazon, my pick of the week, Amazon gets bottoms this week, which was the marvellous comedy that I had a lot of time for last year. High on your list. And also Expats lands on Amazon this week. Paramount Plus. Now, I said that we might be talking about TV next week in the reviews because on Paramount Plus, we get Sexy Beast Season 1, a TV series idea drawn from the great film Sexy Beast. And Apple TV Plus, Masters of the Air arrives. And we've both got our eye on that one. Looking forward to that one. Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, their kind of spiritual follow-up to Band of Brothers. Because it's on Apple Plus, it will have all the money. Yes. It's going to be mostly TV reviews next week, I think. Well, I think it will be. Well, that's the end of the show, folks. Thank you for sticking around. And I know while you're sticking around right to the end, you're expecting our neat things. And we're going to give them you. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we've loved in some way over the last week. Andy, your neat thing is? This week, in between playing Power Wash Simulator on the PlayStation 5, which, as you know, for the past two months has been an obsession of mine and I've still not completed it, and boy, I'm loving that game. It's my safe space. Um, I've also been playing a game called Nobody Saves the World. This was one of the ones that landed as one of the free plus giveaways this past few weeks. And it's, it's a dungeon crawl kind of video game with a very old school video game aesthetic to it. It's been out since early 2022 on various platforms. And I had my eye on it, but it's one of them. I always have my eye on these these games and always think, is it worth me spending money? So it was quite nice to actually get it as part of my subscription and be able to play it. And it's so much fun. You're basically a blank slate character nobody with no skills, no talents. You don't even know who you are. And you escape from the capture of a weird wizard after stealing his wand and learn how to change yourself into different creatures. Initially, you can transform into a rat, which helps you get through small pipes and attack things with your great big teeth. And as you go through the game and level up on each of the characters, it opens up branches of other transformations that you can do. And it's just a simple pick up the controller, go and do some quests and go into dungeons and just kill lots of things and get XP. Simple gameplay, simple fun, and some great amusing aspects to interactions with NPCs in the game. This is the kind of game that I always champion when it comes to indie games. I mean, the high-profile games, I know that I said last week that I'm so looking forward to Final Fantasy Rebirth. Yeah, huge amount of money is getting spent onto that, but I will always champion indie-developed games. And this comes from a developer called Drinkbox Studios, because these kind of games are made with passion. These kind of games were made, are made by people who want to make the kind of games that they love to play. And the games that are always throwbacks to like retro elements. I'm a big retro gamer, as anyone who knows me knows. And Nobody Saves the World is one of those games that showcases the best of indie gaming. Simple to pick up and play for a short periods of time or immerse yourself in for longer periods of time. It's just so much fun. Uh, so that's Nobody Saves the World. If you've got a PlayStation Plus subscription, it was part of the deal last month. Get it before it rolls over to next month. I'm sticking with gaming. A Christmas present that I got, which is a bit like you, Andy, has got me all nostalgic. I'm playing Batman Return to Arkham, which is the 2016 remaster compilation of the genius, and, and we wouldn't have had the Spider-Man games without it, Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman 
Arkham City. Um, so it's it's a remaster which makes the gameplay from what I originally remember from playing Arkham Asylum. It doesn't add too much in. There's some aesthetics are are cleaned up. There's more detail in it. it, but it is still more or less the same game. And you know what? Doesn't matter because it is a beautiful and brilliant game. And as I said before, without this game, we wouldn't have had the Spider-Man games because, to be honest, it borrows so much. For many years, seen as the best superhero game ever produced. And you know what? I'm not going to argue with that because it is one of the best superhero games ever produced. Absolutely love it. Um, I'm about halfway through. It's not often that there's a game that I, I can't put down, mm. and, but I can't put this down. Great voice design, of course, Mark Hamill as the Joker, and the great late Kevin Conroy as Batman. Uh, it, it's brilliant. Thoroughly enjoying it. Everything else has slightly been put aside while I finish Arkham Silent, and then I'm going to jump straight into Arkham City. Fabulous. They're so replayable. Oh, they are. It's great. I've played through Arkham Asylum, I think, five times to date. And I will still happily go back and revisit it again because it's a great story as well. It's a marvellous story that you're interacting with. So much fun. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it, it's, it's so much fun. I originally played it on the PS3. It's genius. That's the stun, folks. That's our neat things. And that's our show. God willing, we'll be back here next week because starting my Sunday without doing the film file, it's no, it's no Sunday at all. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, uh, this, I mean, it's me and you get a chance to chat nonsense about films. And if anyone wants to listen, good. But we just love to have our little updates. This is how we interact with the world these days. <laughs> if you're interested, we are developing a range of T-shirts, as we said at the beginning of the program. Get in touch. Let us know if you're interested. And we will speak to you again next week. You know, there's three things in the world that you need. Respect for all kinds of life, a nice bowel movement on a regular basis, and a navy blazer. Oh, the box office. This is... I got, I got all normal wisdom there. I got all normal wisdom there. Mr. Grimm's Dial. Mr. Grimm's Dial. That was the one I was thinking. It's a different show. The entire generation will be going, not a clue. Are they on drugs again? Probably. To a great oh, stage. Very poetic. <clears throat> I'm I'm full of all of this. On a Sunday morning, I'm very You're full of it as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I still think you should put a band together for your birthday, but that's that's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what kind of egocentric person would put a band together for their I birthday? Don't know. <laughs> I'm desperately fighting the urge to do it. Go on. Desperately fighting the urge because because you said sticking around multiple times. Oh, there, I did, didn't I? Yeah, sorry, Andy. It, I've, I've, uh... It's right at the back of my mouth. I, I need to. I need to do it. Stick it around. <laughs>